Welcome back to Enlighten Up for episode 68, Parasitic Entities Harvesting the Orgasm, Technology Hijacking Intimacy, and Reclaiming Divine Sovereignty with Amalia Jan Karras. Amalia is the founder of Know the Self, a mystery school for modern day living, and she's got a great show lined up for us. We're going to be talking about so many different topics today. We're going to be talking about those pesky negative entities, those parasitic negative entities that are apparently harvesting the energy of our orgasms. How did Amalia discover this and how can we prevent it from happening? We're also going to talk about technology and how it has been hijacking our intimacy, how we are no longer able to be intimate with one another uh, on all different levels of our relationships. We're also going to talk about some really sensitive topics. Uh, We're going to talk about bloodline abuse and we're going to talk about how Brazilian wax may relate to this abuse. We're going to also later in the show get into our kundalini activation and how we can invite love back into our lives and how this all relates to reclaiming our divine sovereignty it's a great episode so without further ado let's jump right in and see what amalia has to share with us hello everyone welcome back to the show i am nicole frolic and i am joined by my beautiful co-host Lisa and Brian and today we've got a great episode lined up for you. We are joined by Amalia Jan Karras, the author of Synchronicity, Unlock Your Divine Destiny. She is also the founding director of Know The Self, a mystery school for modern day living in which she guides truth seekers to access their innate wisdom. She has helped thousands worldwide to liberate their minds, navigate expanding realities and establish sustainable lifestyles while living out their divine destinies. We have so much to talk about today. In fact, we're going to have a great conversation about love, sex, intimacy, and those damn negative entities stealing our energy, harvesting our sexual orgasms. That's right. We are going to talk more about sex, and uh, we're going to get into some darker topics that might be a bit too sensitive for some of our listeners to hear. And if that's the case, then listen to your own guidance. However, I feel that this information is timely and important for many to hear and get a deeper understanding of what has been taking place right under our noses. So if you stick around and hear the information, we greatly appreciate it. These conversations are so important to have, and we are so happy to have Amalia on the show with us. So Amalia, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys, and I I look forward to where this conversation leads us. I know, because it can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we've actually had a couple episodes um, on this podcast where we've talked about love, um, and we've also talked about sex, and Lisa and I were just mentioning this to each other last night that we realized that in some of our episodes, we kind of sound anti-sex in some (laughs) of our episodes, but it's... It's only because uh, we're not anti-sex, but just that we believe just from what we've learned through our own experiences that we need to be a lot more mindful of who we're having sex with and how we're sharing our energy. Exactly. Lisa Watson is definitely not (laughs) (laughs) anti-sex. Me either. And it's funny because when I talk about this, people get that impression too, but it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, so (laughs) um, love is a very interesting topic. What is your take on love? Like what it means to you and how it's expressed in our world? Mm. So love is the most powerful currency energy on the planet. It is the, the great healer. It is the 
the source of our connection. It's that oneness field that we all have access to return to if we so choose. And I think it's it's the one energetic currency that people are confused about because it's been so distorted and twisted to to connotate things that it it's actually the opposite of such as like jealousy or possession of someone um envy like there's a shadow side um to love that people still think is a is a version of love and and so i think that we all come from love we all have love in us but depending on the circumstances in life and, and how we were raised in different traumatic situations, we, we forget what love truly is. And we start identifying with these shadow illusionary versions of love, which kind of lead us into some, some dark places and some confusing places. And so I feel that there's a, a deficit, like a, a critical, collective scream on the planet for for needing love needing to connect to that original love um, because we've been pulled so far away from it and we yet we can't exist without it because it is it, it's our it's a part of our life force and and what we were designed from like we all come from love love is at the core of our being, but because we've we've been so manipulated to by by a, a darkness, or one other way to say it is because we live in such a dualistic plane that the the distortions or the mirror um, it's like a hall of mirrors of what love is, and so through our relationships and through the ways in which um, we've been entrained by our families of origin or wh whoever we grew up and our culture and our communities, um, these distortions kind of keep breeding on themselves. And so people have come really far away from love. And I feel that this is a time that we really need to return to it and remember it at its truest essence in order to, to heal from, from the pain and suffering that we also inflict upon ourselves or that we're feeling victimized by. Yeah. I, I mean, we've talked about this, um, in previous shows where we've been so programmed through movies, TV, religion, uh, a whole institution, like our schooling, like so many different um, ways that we've been programmed to believe love means something that it doesn't actually mean. It's actually like a tainted version of what love is. Yeah. And um, so part of our job for those of us who are starting to really re reconnect with what you're talking about, what the, the real love is for where we all come from is to bust through those old false um, ideologies of love and reveal what it's really about, which to, to me, I think we've talked about this on the show. It's just an unconditional aspect to it. And when you were talking about like jealousy and envy and all those things, those things are never present when love is truly there, like exactly. the real love. You guys keep talk throwing out titles of songs, by the way. <laughs> we, oh, really? Shadow, 
<laughs> shatter the illusions of love, tainted love. All you need is love. I mean, come on. <laughs> Artists were connecting to it and trying to spread a message, it seems. <laughs> Well, I'm very curious now. I mean, I've heard your part of your story, but I know Lisa and Brian have it, and, and I'm pretty sure a lot of our audience hasn't. Uh, how did you start connecting um, with spirit and this idea of reconnection with love and bringing back the intimacy um, and connecting that all to sexual energy? Mm. So I was raised in a born-again Christian cult. Um, so I was indoctrinated by birth into um, a church that didn't allow me to have any friends um, or know anyone who wasn't a part of the church. So from the time I was born until I was 14 years old, I never knew anyone outside of my church community. So I, I knew no other dogma except that what was programmed to me. Um, yet I had a lot of information inside of me. Um, and the beauty of having been born into such a, um, religious, uh, you know, Bible something thing is that I, I, I really had to study the Bible every day. And uh, of course I, I fully believed it cause I knew nothing else. And so, um, what it gave me was a very strong connection to this all loving source of energy the presence of God. Um, and it also gave me, um, the gift of prayer. And as a very pious child, you know, I, I started connecting and praying to God and, you know, as early as I can remember. And my prayers were answered. Now, the way they were answered and the way that spirit communicated to me didn't fit into my, my church dogma. So for example, you know, I would pray to the stars feeling that God lived in the cosmos and then, you know, orbs of light would dance around and, and move and come down on a evening, you know, on a regular basis. And so that was my confirmation that God heard my prayers and, and heard me calling home, basically. Um, and that progressed as I, as I grew older and my gifts got stronger and stronger in terms of connecting to this all-loving presence, connecting to my home. But, it, but the information that I would receive and the knowledge and the confirmation that was given to me through this invisible unseen hand of God working in my life did not fit with the Christian dogma nor the new international version of the Bible that I was reading. Um, so there wasn't any room for these other dimensional beings. There weren't names for what I was experiencing. And, and, and so the questions began what would you describe as like your first major kind of awakening moment? Hmm. Um, yeah, I was just speaking about this last night with a friend of mine here. Um, I, and I write about um, a couple of these moments in my book. Um, but I, I think the first um 
answer to prayer I got was when I was about, I think I was five years old. And um, my sister and I shared a room for, for about a couple of years of our early childhood. And she was around um, nine, I guess at the time, nine or 10. And we would say prayers before we went to bed and do what we were taught to like forgive each other. And so we would forgive each other. And then we would like ask for things from God. And I knew she really wanted a horse. So um, we across the street from our house was rolling hills and, um, and uh, there there were horses and a stables opposite us, but we didn't own a horse. And she really wanted this black stallion. And so at night before bed, I was like, imagining it really strongly. And we started talking about it through the prayer. And I was saying, wow, you know, God, please bring, you know, my sister, this black stallion, she would be so happy. And I was really picturing her riding the horse and how beautiful she would feel on it and how happy she would be. Cause my sister, um, she was adopted and she had a lot of trauma and abuse that, that was very evident her whole childhood. And so I was always trying to protect her kind of bring the grace of God into our family and um, into her life. And so we said this prayer and the next morning I woke up before her and I ran downstairs and I was sitting, um, nobody else was awake in the house and we had a a two-story house. Everybody slept upstairs and I had run down to the, to the front um, living room where there was this big couch and a big picture window out to the front yard. And I would often sit there and stare at the horses across the street. Um, so I was sitting on the couch waiting for people to wake up and there, I kid you not, there was this huge horse without a bridle, without a saddle, just like a wild horse standing on our front yard, like at the front door, like wanting to come in the house. <laughs> and I freaked out and I, you know, ran upstairs and woke her up and I was like crying, screaming, like your horse is here. God answered the prayer. And she jumped out and, you know, we were freaking out like, oh, say, and I thought, I thought that maybe my parents had brought it as an early present for her or something because they knew how much she wanted a horse. And um, when my mom woke up because we were screaming, she was like beside herself, like, how is this possible? And I was like, you didn't bring the horse. I thought you brought the horse because I knew Santa Claus didn't exist, you know, and, and that my parents were the ones who were going to bring us anything. But when my mom was just as perplexed as I was, then I, I, I sat back in complete awe and beauty of the grace of prayer, you know, like the answer to a prayer. And now it was a white horse. It wasn't black, but that made it even more special. I felt that it had literally been plucked from horse heaven and, and brought (laughs) to my sister to tell her that she could pray to get out of her misery. I mean, she was extremely um, abused. So I felt that it worked, you know, magic is, is real. I think that was my first realization that, you know, what I, what I pray for, if I pray from the purity of my heart through love, that, that it'll be received and, and responded to. Did she get to keep the horse? No, it, it turned out that, um, the horse had somehow escaped from the stables down the road. Um, Cause my mom called all the stables asking them, you know, there's a horse on our yard. How did it get here? And then they said it had escaped and no horse had ever escaped ever before. Um, so why that day? 
you know? So even though I knew how the horse got there, that it had escaped, but why our yard there, there was so many neighbors. It could have picked hundreds of homes to stand on their front porch. You know, it wasn't like we're the only house out there. Um, we we're in a track of homes. We just butted up to, to a rolling hill. So yes, the stables were across the street, but the gate or where it came from was maybe like half a mile away and why it chose our house. Why that day? Um, why at that moment when you were yeah. like looking out the window? Yeah. Why did I find yeah. it and no one else? Yeah. Why was I awake before everyone else? Yeah. All of those things. So that was a beautiful. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. So um, on a complete little just side note, <laughs> Brian's <laughs> been having some experiences lately with synchronicities and higher self. I don't know what you're talking about. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> he has to maintain his skeptic status. Okay. I don't have to maintain a status. That's, you know, wild coincidences. Whatever. <laughs> my my higher so here's a t-shirt for us. My higher self may or may not be communicating with me. <laughs> That's a t-shirt for you. (laughs) So, um, you know, since we're on the topic of Brian, um, Brian has recently found out through his Akashic Records reading that intimacy is something, it's part of his lesson right now or journey. And how do you find that intimacy has been blocked by people or distorted um, through their relationships with other people, or maybe even just with self too. Well, yeah, that's, that's a big one because just as much as love has been like tainted and distorted into all these different programs through our relationships. So as you know, intimacy comes with love or comes from love and this lack of being able to connect, let, being able to connect to our higher self, to that um, that divine spark that lives within us, that's connected to everyone else. Uh, when we crave intimacy, we're really craving that that connection that comes from knowing of the self. And when we know who we are and we're comforted in ourself, then it's very easy to find the comfort or be a comfort to others and to create that intimacy. Um, but there, there's a lot of programs on the planet. Um, this kind of opens another can of worms. So if you choose my words carefully here, but there is this kind of agenda to, to keep us away from it. And I say that when, when you just look at like technology or, um, you know, how we've chosen to live in our modern lives and nuclear families here in the West, like single family homes. And now, you know, with the dissolution of marriage and relationships, now people, you find a lot of single people living alone. And then they're finding that connection through um, TV, internet, that now the phones have taken over. So more and more lack of connection, more and more separation um, and using false ways of connection to fill that need, which don't actually fill it. So people are still feeling more and more empty, more and more void, even though they might be 
like having touch points of connection all day. It's not the, it's not pure deep intimacy. It's, it's like false, false intimacy, like texting or, um, social media, you know, there's, there's a, a filter there. Yeah. Like there's a a barrier Mm -hmm. that's really preventing true intimacy. And why? Because that is the most powerful um, force in the universe. So those who want to control others or who want to have power over others um, can only have that power if, if they disconnect you from love. That makes a lot of sense. And, and just obviously when we look at um, us as a society, it's, even if you just sit in a restaurant and you look at everyone sitting at their tables so many people are on their phones, not actually talking to the people they're with. Yeah. Um, and it's just completely destroying how we uh, connect with one another. And um, that makes a lot of sense. And I know, like I did this um, experiment when I did a talk with the a group of uh, businessmen and I made them sit in pairs across from one another, looking into each other's mm-hmm. eyes. <laughs> And it was very uncomfortable for everyone at first. And I think this, we don't know how to move past that discomfort of creating that really intimate connection because it's, I don't like with, especially with men, men to men, um, it's there, but even just man to woman or woman to woman, like it can get very uncomfortable when people are making that, when you're looking into one another's eyes without moving away because you really are naked in that moment. It's very intense. So how have they done that with people sexually? Like, remove the intimacy well just like what i was telling you through through this whole modern culture um they're removing it constantly i mean porn has completely taken the 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 lead in removing intimacy because they're feeding you with all these manipulated and twisted ways that get more and more extreme more and more desensitized um so, so we're seeking more extreme feelings of connection because we have such a deficit of it. So it's like the soul is starving to go home to itself. It's starving to be seen and to recognize and to be connected to love. We're, we're love-deprived people, but yet it's our birthright to be loved because we're born from love. So when we when we go back to that, we see the illusion of it and then the whole game makes sense and we can choose differently and step outside it. But most of us are, are being bombarded by it every single moment of the day it, through everything that you're doing, through every device you touch to the type of work you choose to, like you were saying, you go to a restaurant, everyone's on a device. I mean, I, just, I was going to take a photo the other day in San Francisco sitting in a restaurant and almost every table except the one I was at was staring at their phones. 
it was almost like a nightmare <laughs> looking around. I was like, what's going on? Why aren't they here to like enjoy each other's presence? Um, you know, but it wasn't a fancy restaurant. It was like a, a mid-tier restaurant. And I thought, oh, yeah. they're just here to eat. And then they don't really care what the company they're in. Um, it's like, it's all functional. And the, the lack of intimacy, love and connection has has taken a backseat. So therefore, like, this sort of darker agenda has has taken hold and then we buy into it and we enable it by not making the time to connect. Well, we're doing it in families. What blows my mind is seeing how young children are with a phone in their yeah. hand or a iPad in their hand, whether they're sitting in the car or they're at the grocery store or at a restaurant. And so they're not even learning to communicate with their family when they're with them. They're completely detaching from you know, as early as the age of one, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was driving down the road the other day and saw some kids. I think I was near a high school and there were about four girls walking down the sidewalk and every one of them had their face in their phone, Yeah, just walking down the sidewalk. And I'm just like, wow, you're not even talking to each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you're more interested in who's on the other end of your phone than you are with the people that you're with. Yeah. And maybe they're texting just to each other. <laughs> it's really weird. Maybe. I think families do that in houses. Yeah. It's crazy. And like, obviously no judgment on any parent that uses that. Cause I totally, I've seen so many of my Wait, um, why? friends. Why, why is there no judgment on those parents? I'm just curious. Well, for a lot of reasons. For one, I'm not in their shoes and I'm not... Um, but if, but like, if we don't judge it and challenge it, it's not going to get better. You can challenge it, but you don't need to judge it. Like for instance, like when I see some of my single friends who are single mothers and they're taking care of their children and they just, you know, one of my girlfriends is like, Nicole, you don't even get a moment to use the toilet by yourself. And so if it means like for 10 minutes of peace to put like an iPad in front of their child, that's what they do to survive. You know, like, when I say don't judge, it's because we're all doing the best that we can given the tools that we know and the programming that we're under. And if you have more awareness to it, then you can actually see that. But if someone's not aware of it, then you can't really judge them for it until like we provide a more information, which is what we're trying to do right now. Um, but I feel like you can't judge people for it. Um, just like for the food, that given eat, that the things like if you yeah. don't know what you don't know, like I, if it's hard to believe that people wouldn't realize that it's not healthy to do that same, you know, and I think the same thing about drinking Coca-Cola or processed right. foods, like, don't you just know that's not a good thing to give your child, <laughs> but some people just the programming's so deep that they don't know. Mm -hmm. well, and we mm -hmm. all use, yeah, we need to educate we're them. all using the digital pacifier because it is a pacifier, right? That's what we're trying to do is pacify the discomfort. So, you know, children who were given the little pacifiers were, you know, often crying and the, the mother's not around and they're 
it, I think, I believe, I don't know, I haven't done the research, but now I'm curious, when did the pacifier get developed? Was it alongside of um, formula, designing formula for babies? Because that in itself was to destroy the, the connection to the mother, like to destroy the connection well, the to bottle, love. The bottle was, mm -hmm. the, the, the bottle was before the, the pacifier and it just, it served the same, mm -hmm. the same purpose. I mean, even if you, even if you pump breast milk, you're still using a bottle. And they knew from those early ages that, you know, when, when that started, that children who were bottle fed or, um, formula fed were, were traumatized in some way. Like they were going through a kind of withdrawal from the mother. Um, and then it's taken generations later for them to like go back to, Oh, you know, the natural birthing and, um, the, the attachment to the mother and, and this whole movement of swaddling the baby and keeping them close to the body and skin to skin contact is so critical to the emotional development of healthy people. Like if we don't have that, then we have a severe trauma and lack and therefore like it, you need care. Like if we rescue, um, an animal that's been abused or abandoned by its its mother, we're we're aware that 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 animal is going to have weird behavioral issues, right? Like it might have a um, what's the word when when the owner leaves and the dog has um, abandonment, not abandonment issues, but for animals. Um, oh, post post post. Like it's like a postpartum, but it's what is like it people have um, to take their their um, their dogs with them everywhere because that dog was abused when it was young, and um, it, it's very known in the animal um, healing and you know vets and everyone understands that about an anyone who understands rescuing animals knows that a rescued animal has weird separation anxiety. Thank you. Separation yeah, anxiety. We, we all have separation anxiety because of the way we were birth. If we, if you weren't a natural birth at home, uh, like a home birth without any drugs, um, and you weren't breastfed, you have separation anxiety at some level. So it's going to come out through either codependent behavior or other sort of distortions, uh, as I call them in your field. It's just something that we all have to work through on our path back to wholeness and healing back our path back to love to really bring back and really work on being intimate. Like those eye gazing exercises are so critical. Like why can't we sit and really gaze at someone? Um, and then what happens now is that when people do feel intimacy, they totally translate it in a wrong way. Like I, I lived in India for eight years and being in around Eastern men was really fascinating for me because they misread eye gazing completely because they don't allow it in the East. Eye gazing is only for sexual contact or something like they, if you look someone in the eye, they think you're either um, challenging them or you're wanting to sleep with them. Like there's no other reason to look someone in the eye because they avoid intimacy at all levels. And mm -hmm. 
I, I feel though like that's also here too. I mean, most people would feel uncomfortable if <laughs> yeah. someone's just looking in your eyes. <sighs> you know, like it's... Brian does it to me all the time. Stares at me. Creepy. But he's your partner, right? So that's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's creating it. <laughs> when he does it to me, it's creepy. <laughs> I'm glad but I can't you did see tell it. me that... <laughs> You did tell me that other women you had dated that they were it made them uncomfortable. Like they yeah. would ask you, "Why are you just looking at me?" And I was like, "I'm just looking at you," and they're just like, "You're staring at me." I was like, "Isn't that what you do when you look at someone?" And and yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's really fascinating that it didn't bother me. People don't like that long eye contact. And what does it do for you? Know, you? And- like. Like I'm trying to make a connect. I mean, it's it's not sitting on a bus staring at somebody. Mm. It's you know you're in a relationship with somebody, and you're you know sitting at the table, and you're just looking at the other person, mm-hmm. and they're why are you staring? Is like trying to establish a connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't so that maybe, the point of it? So maybe you don't have a problem with intimacy. I don't think you do, but that's another story of why your Akashic Records would say that in this life time that you're working on that. I think there must be different levels of intimacy. I would imagine. We could ask the expert. Well, I think that there's also different ways. Yeah. Different ways of connecting. Mm -hmm to that brian have you met anyone who could meet you in your eye gazing or do people just see it as a challenge or get nervous well lisa lisa doesn't have a problem with Mm -hmm. it um but i would say in general i think most people don't like eye contact Mm -hmm. you know meaning what i would call meaningful eye contact i would say most people don't don't like it it's more like if we're sitting at a table eating together or something, he'll be looking at me. You know, he's not looking at his phone or just looking around a rest the restaurant at other people. Mm-hmm. He's present. And I like it because I feel like he's present. Every time I look up, there are his yeah, eyes sta- looking so at me. And not staring, but looking at me. And like for me, my ex-husband never like looked at, like if we were in a restaurant, even if he was talking to me, he was looking around the room. Like I couldn't get him to just look at me and have a conversation eye to eye. Yeah. So I like it. It doesn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I like it too. It's, it's, um, it definitely increases the feeling of connection. Um, and I think sometimes people are afraid of being seen. Absolutely. Terrified of it. Yeah, like, what are you going to see if I keep looking at you um, or hold your mm-hmm. gaze? Like, it, like it's that naked feeling um, because our eyes are the windows to our souls and you just, there's so much that comes through when you make well, that and, connection. Well, and, it, and it, is so. a, it is a deeper connection. So if, if you're not willing to have a deeper connection, you are not going to want to have somebody gazing intently at you because you're maybe you're you're trying to avoid eye contact or you're not sure about the connection or the future 
and you're going to avoid the eye contact, the intimacy. Yeah. Well, okay. I love <laughs> to take this conversation to the next level. Um, Sex, baby. To... Let's talk about you <laughs> and me. You can lay down the tracks to, to all these songs. So, <laughs> It'll tell the yeah. whole story. I know. <laughs> I know, really. Feel free, Brian, at any point, just drop a track. <laughs> what really interests me is this idea of how um, we've been invaded through our sexual energy um and used for our sexual energy how did that awareness come to you like how did that start mm. um it started really young uh, in childhood at the church i i i became aware that um sexuality was a type of power that of course in a born again christian um society, they don't speak about sex. Sex is, you know, we're kind of grown up um, feeling that, that it's shameful and that, you know, everyone should be a virgin until they're married and all that stuff. But what I noticed was that we had a lot of hypocrites. So for some reason, I was able to understand the, the hypocrisy at the core of individuals, specifically the church leaders, the pastors. And there were a few very prominent men in our church that I was very aware were, you know, molesting children. Um, my best friend and my sister and my sister's best friend. And I grew up thinking it had never happened to me, um, but I was very aware that it was happening to them. And so everyone else was aware it was happening to them too. You know, like it all came out, um, some of it dealing with, um, legalities, like my sister's gymnast teacher, uh, gym coach, she was a gymnastic, um, she was a gymnast and her gymnastics coach, when I was around, I think six years old, he killed himself because he was found out to be molesting the whole gym team that he, who was on his team, which my sister was one of them. And so you know, I guess it was around that age that I realized um, that these these men were being used by a darkness that I could see. I could see when it would enter them, and I could see that they had different eyes. Talk about looking into the eyes. So um, that same darkness would come through um, my sister towards me a lot. She she would get like these possessions and and try and literally kill me. Um, so I grew up avoiding this dark demon that was infiltrating people. Um, and then I saw that it was hungry for the, it fed off of the sexuality. And it wasn't until I was in, um, I guess I was 30. It was, it was 2003 when I had my, I had a, a, huge spiritual kundalini awakening where um, nine people in my life died in one year. And the first two who died was my father and my spiritual teacher, who was a Japanese man. And they died two weeks apart from each other. And um, 
when they passed, uh, all of my gifts of vision opened. So I was able to to see through the space that looks empty, that sits between us. So there was a lot of information in the field. Um, it was extremely psychedelic for a number of years. I couldn't control it whatsoever, um, but I, I could see all realms, all dimensions, and I could see what was connecting us. I was getting downloads of, you know, where we come from. And before that time, I was very psychic and I had a lot of gifts, but nothing at this level. Um, and it radically changed my life and I couldn't do what I was doing any longer. I was working in tech. I couldn't even be on the computer anymore because it was too much information. But the main thing that happened is I could no longer have sex and I really enjoyed sex um, before that. And this really messed me up. Um, so for five years, I, I, chose abstinence because I was battling with this dark demon, demonic energies, and um, which I could see very palpably, and I could see how they were manipulating people and sort of hooked into the grid of this planet and how it was feeding off of the orgasm or the orgasmic state. And the younger orgasm, the better. So particularly children. Um, and how I was a part of that. And it would, it was bringing back memory that was so disturbing for me. Um, and so for five years, I, I just couldn't have anybody touch me literally. Like if they touched me, I would see their darkness. I would see the curses and the shadows and the distortions that not only lived in their lifetime, right now, but I would see the past life karma, how many generations it goes back, how long the abuse has been in their bloodline and how much clearing had to be done. And it was just completely overwhelming to me. And so for those five years, I saw sex as a very, um, like it, sex was ruined for me. It was all of a sudden this beast-like craze um, of feeding a, a darkness that I didn't want to feed. Um, and since then I, it's evolved and, and shifted over the years, you know, that was quite a long time ago. Um, how did you, and so, yeah. Sorry. How did you mm -hmm. see them using the energy? Like, how did you see that? If you could describe it. For so the yeah, it, it was really fascinating. So I was sitting in my apartment in the lower height of San Francisco. Um, and my fiance who I was with at the time happened to be an, um, of Indian heritage. And he comes from a long line of, of tantric healers. And he had also had a Kundalini awakening like I had. Um, and so we were engaging in some sexual energy and I that's when the vision started um, where I was tracking the energy um, that he was evoking in my body. So as my energy was getting aroused, which was like through massage or what, it was just very slow breathing and touch. Um, I started to follow, I was following the, 
the kundalini flow in my body, which feels like this undulating electrical current. And I, I followed it up um, and it went into this fourth density, the astral realm, where all people who were having sex or who are turned on to their sexual energy were having an aspect of themselves in that realm. It was really trippy. It was sort of like where we all go when we dream or where we all go when we fantasize or reach peak sexual states. It's like our astral body is being invoked. And so I was awake in the astral realm and I saw all of this sort of orgasmic energy. I also saw a lot of weird pornographic, um, you know, like sort of dark sexual energy, which has never scared me before. Like I was very explorative <laughs> in my twenties. Um, so I was are. like, well, this is really, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. You know, there's, there's a lot of orgies. There's a lot of this, but then there was all of the cults sex ritual stuff that I started to see um, that I hadn't known I was a part of at that time. Um, so this is where it, it's got turned on. This memory got turned on for me but basically there I was in the astral realm seeing all these things and then I asked to see um why is this so dark like where's the sacred sexuality why what is this darkness here you know I don't want to tap into this sick energy um because I believe sexuality and orgasm is sacred you know it's our connection to the divine and so why is it being blocked by this shadow? And then I looked up and I saw that there were these shadowy creatures that were huge, like wispy clouds, but having some sort of a form. And they definitely had a consciousness and they definitely um, were trapping the astral plane. So they had covered you know, if you see the astral plane, like if you see a globe like the earth and then you see some layers over the, the earth, like atmospheric rings, that's what it looked like. So the, the fourth dimensional um, plane looked like an, like if we were to move just out of our atmosphere and, and hit the next atmosphere, that was the astral realm. Mm -hmm. This is how I was seeing it. And it was in that realm where all these dark, beings were hovering and they had covered the planet like a network of parasites and they were plugging into and siphoning off of our sexual energy as their way of vamping off our power structures and so i got this whole download of information, this sort of cosmic view of what was happening and how this has been happening for, I think, thousands of, of years and how my, my specific role was to blast holes through this atmosphere, like air traffic controller to clear off these dark entities and allow, help people to realign to the true source of light, to their true innate divine heritage where they could, to reach back to pure love, 
because these these entities were in fact uh, controlling our religions, controlling all of these, you know, like the the pastor and the deacon at my church that I was aware were abusing the children and siphoning the sexual energy off of the children. Um, they're being controlled by these beings. And I would see that. I saw that from childhood. I've seen it my whole life and I continue to see it pretty much everywhere I go. And until an individual chooses love and literally you have to choose love personally you have to make that declaration to choose love and i think that's what the christ consciousness and and i think that's what the the christianity was trying to teach me of like invite jesus into your heart like that sounded so bizarre to me but when i see it like oh it's the christed heart it's the awakened heart that knows that it is a child of god you know we can use that languaging or it is part of the oneness it's a divine spark that needs to reach beyond the illusion of these um parasitic entities um in order to remember that we are sovereign and actually we can return to that wholeness and innocence through our own doing like no one's gonna come and and rescue us but as long as we're in this victimized state of being siphoned off of and inviting in these parasites or hiding in the shame. It hides in shame. It hides in the darkness. It hides in all of those things you do behind closed doors that you don't tell anybody about. That's where this energy breeds. It's its breeding ground. And so when you've invited shame and guilt or victimization and trauma into your life, then these, these entities kind of, um, they keep growing until we we choose to shine a light on them and then they have to dissipate they have to retract because you by claiming love again you're you're kind of healing that that tear in the astral realm and you're restoring um your own connection to your multi-dimensional nature if that makes sense yeah. Um, okay. You've just like dropped so many truth bombs on us <laughs> in that whole thing. I don't even know where to like start right now. Um, I'm going to, Brian Lee, is there anything that you really wanted to touch on? Yes, but it's not a good segue. Just- <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Go for it. Okay. Um <laughs> Okay. Well, this is something Lisa and I have talked about because, you know, you two, Lisa and Nicole have, have talked a couple of times, um, you know, in our private conversations, I I think we've touched on it maybe once or twice here on the, on the show about child sexuality or that there's this some sort of sex with children and that it's this huge under pedophilia. Yeah. You you guys talk about pedophilia a lot and that it's this huge underground thing. Um, or maybe it's an above ground thing. Um, I, I had a one time when you guys were talking about it, I just had this, I remember, I don't want to say it was a dream because that makes it sound creepy. Um, 
I had, and I don't want to say I had a knowing because that makes you feel right, Nicole. Oh God, and, stop it. <laughs> you can't have that. But I had this, oh, here's, here's a good word. I had this understanding mm. <laughs> and, but, but it was, it was about the Brazilian wax mm-hmm. and, ah, yes. and how I just had this feeling. It's like the Brazilian wax is, is like, are you trying to look mm-hmm. like a child? Mm-hmm. And does it does it foster that feeling, you know, in men that they that there's this that there's this desire for something younger? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I I so, totally know where you're going with that. And um, uh, from like a surface area, it doesn't seem like that. But when you know what's actually going on, um, unfortunately, right be, right beneath our noses, um, it's. It's underground, but as you said, it's also right underneath our noses. It makes absolute sense that there would be that agenda behind it, but would use something else to make us feel okay with it to get that done. And um, I've heard some men say that they don't like it because it makes them feel like you're a child. Um, And I think that's a very interesting point because... When you think about the extremely nefarious um, acts that are happening with children, um, unfortunately, it's it makes complete sense to me. It, it I I would absolutely draw that parallel. Right. Well, that that I mean that is a that is an evolutionary that's an evolutionary sign that you have left childhood and mm-hmm. entered mm-hmm. womanhood. Mm-hmm. Hair. Yeah. And to remove it is saying I'm. Or it's not saying because well, I mean it's 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 an unspoken it's an unspoken thing. I'm go I'm I'm going back, I'm gonna present myself as a child. Yeah, and I would ask all the women who get Brazilian wax, um I would bet most of to leave a landing strip. <laughs> well I bet I bet most of them have been abused as girls. Because it not only lives in in the psyche of the man's taste, because this is also um, the way I saw it. This is genetics, so it's it's coming in through generations. So our parents were molested. I know for a fact that my mom. I grew up knowing that my mother had been molested as a child, and that's why we were Christian, and that's why she was so repressed and um, frigid in her sexuality and not allowing. Like she even cut my sister and my hair to look like boys when we were young and we hated it, but it was like, she, that was her way of keeping us safe. Um, so, Mm. and and every, anyone who deals with, you know, sexual, um, survivor, survivors of sexual abuse knows that it often, you know, it runs in family lines. And if you're getting a Brazilian bikini wax, you might have hidden memory of being molested as a child because the it, it feeds off our pleasure center. So if we were pleasured as a child, um, which anyone who's being abused, there's some part of you that, that likes it because it, it's very confusing. But the child doesn't have the awareness to know good and bad pleasure. And that's the whole point of it. That's why they 
that's why it's so powerful and po- it's like nectar of the demons the 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 virginal orgasm or the virginal pleasure it's so potent and so when it happens to us when we're molested as children that's our first sense of pleasure that part of our brain so as an adult we might fantasize about being raped we might fantasize about um being tickled a certain way or pleased a certain way there's so many perversions and kinks that we all have due to how it started what is our memory or hidden memory of pleasure mm-hmm. i mean you look at the um the way media has desensitized us to like normalized it just even with the um, 50 shades of gray yes. books and movies and um in, and, you know, to be very honest, I think I've said this on the um, podcast once, but because it was brought up, I can't remember in the context or how, but I, when I was younger, I did have like these, um, when I think of it now, it's just not healthy relationships with sex and these weird fantasies. And now going through this, um, um, understanding and reconnection back to love I look I would never do that now I would never do that and it disturbs me to know that that was present in me when I was younger and the only um thing that I can think of at least for what I'm aware of right now is that um it could have been generational through the bloodlines um I have no memory of being abused as a kid Um, but you know, there's such a desensitization through our media, through, um, TV, movies, um, advertising, um, books. And when we think about how our energy is used and this negative agenda of this, the energies, these negative energies, entities, which are using, which are using people here on this planet to act out certain things so that they can feed off that energy. I just, I, I gotta be honest. I thank God very often that I've been able to move away from that and, um, not take part in that anymore. But I know so many people do and so many women, especially with these Fifty Shades of Grey books and movies, like glorify it and think it's so great and almost make it like this hip thing to do and almost like a female empowerment thing. Like that I find really disturbing. Yeah. I think there's more. I learned from my own experience that you don't have to be physically molested to be molested, Mm. I guess maybe is the only way to describe it. Like, you know, you, you could have been exposed to certain things. Like maybe you weren't touched, but you were exposed to, you know, pornographic material when you were very young or to a man doing things to himself in front of you or um, being spoken to a certain way. Mm -hmm. So those things also, I think, have an mm-hmm. effect on the psyche. So, you know, maybe you think to yourself, well, I've never been molested, 
but maybe you have psychologically been mm-hmm. molested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, in my 20s, I never thought I had been molested, but I knew that all the girls closest to me had, like I knew my best friend had by her father. I knew that my sister had by her, her gym coach and also our pastor. Um, I knew that her best friend who, you know, she was uh, molested and had a very traumatic life. Um, So I thought it, and I knew my mom had, so I thought that for me, it was just knowing that people had had this was affecting me and and in my 20s and my sector sexual exploration yeah i went i went fully into like bdsm and polyamory and um kind of thrived in it and i did find my power in it and i think what it did for me was allow me to explore my shadow and then i came to a point where um it was more challenging to, to be light. And I, I kind of made this 180 degree sort of pendulum swing, um, where I realized I was actually more terrified of the light that was in me than the shadow, but I, I really needed to explore my shadow. And I think it's important for people to explore their shadow, but also, um, know like who's controlling their shadow and like really take ownership of the self uh, so that you're not afraid of yourself because when you do invoke the shadow or your shadow aspects and go into these darker things that are lurking inside you um who's in control and like where's the the levels of discernment and it, it it takes a strong mind and I think a clear heart to go in and come out and like find your own balance but we all need to to find our own balance and unfortunately I think that you know we're all being um provoked by by the music industry by the film industry um, by the entertainment industry on every level, um, and also in, in corporations and business and money, like uh, how to just keep exciting the dark, exciting the dark, exciting the dark. And now we're having this kind of spiritual awakening as a collective where more and more light is is available on the planet and people are seeing, uh, you know, there's there's more spiritual awake people on the planet than ever before. and mm-hmm. And with that, there's a balancing act happening. So I think that we have to do the work inside ourselves and really know our shadow in order to know our light. So how does someone um, prevent these, the harvesting of their orgasm and their sexual energy, which is meant to be connection to creator God, um, because that is the energy of creation how does someone prevent that from being harvested by this negative energy? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not that easy because it's so, uh, it has been so saturated. And I would say that very few people knew how to do that until more recently. I feel like the last few years, there's more 
access to the divine light, but the process is clearing the trauma in your body, like really clearing it, clearing all triggers in your body, um, which requires going back into those places where you have trauma, pain, suffering, triggers, anger, um, jealousy, what, and, and rectifying, healing, forgiving, releasing, and that can take years and a lot of emotional hard work and a lot of facing of, of your own shadows. And people don't like that part of the process, right? Everybody wants to skip it or spiritually bypass by like, just have happy thoughts and everything's going to be fine. And it's like, well, no, actually you need to, you need to walk through that gate in order, in order to um, know why, for me, what I see is if you don't know why you came into this incarnation and what your role is, you can't, you can't access this, um, what I call the multidimensional body or the multidimensional gateway of your, your spiritual nature that lives on many planes of existence simultaneously. And it, it's a massive spiritual awakening to wake up to the cosmic self. But when you've awoken to that, the, the world and everything in it looks very differently then um and, and it's sort of a spontaneous quantum shift of reality that that then you need to integrate um and let and in that space we can reclaim the i don't it sounds so prophetic but like the golden era of our sexuality or or the golden nature the golden serpent of the kundalini rather than this this tainted um, energy. And I think we're, it's happening as we see, um, you know, this pedophile ring being exposed. That, that ring has been in place for many generations. Um, so the fact that it's finally being exposed and the shakedown is on, you know, it's just a matter of time be- before it infiltrates every... Just for our audience, um if you're not aware, if you're watching a lot of mainstream media, you're not going to be aware that there is a huge surge in um, taking down human trafficking and pedophilia rings right now. They're being reported in the news or just not being reported in the mainstream media news, which should give you a really clear red flag as to perhaps their involvement in it. But you'll see a lot uh, is happening right now. If you are to go to other sources um, of media that are showing that there are huge rings being taken down right now, which is a great thing. Um, but it's going to start coming out in the news a lot more. So that's one of the reasons why I felt like it's just so important to be talking about this. So that it starts to prepare our consciousness and our psyche for what's going to be coming out because so many people aren't prepared mm-hmm. for this kind of information. And it takes a long time to sit with it, digest it and understand it because for the normal person, the average person who's you know, got a, a, you know, just a love for a child, a love for just humanity, um, even at the most basic level, can't even understand or fathom that this is even going on. So um, I just wanted to point that out, that if you want to know that this stuff is getting taken care of, you're going to have to look outside our regular media sources. Uh, Brian, what were you going to say? You've Mm -hmm. mentioned Kundalini. 
two or three times. Um, I'm not familiar with that that mm-hmm. uh, word. Can you, can <laughs> yeah. you help a brother out? <laughs> I wasn't either until it happened to me. So um, kundalini is our life force energy. We all have it. It's coiled at the base of our spine. And when <sighs> certain members um, of society, I... I, uh, it's tricky to explain. Certain people are being awakened to that energy. And when the Kundalini awakens, it's like an electrical current that moves up the spine, um, reaches the crown of the head. And you see it depicted uh, in the Hindu statues of like Lord Shiva where they have the cobra coming up over the head as the golden serpent. You also see it in Egypt with the pharaohs. Um, so all of the, the world's leaders and, and those who are in power um, have access to their, their kundalini energy because it's, a, it's an all-powerful life force and it, it awakens you to the memory of your soul. So when your kundalini opens, you will have spontaneous recall of lifetimes and, and gifts and knowledge that was sleeping in your DNA um, prior. So can you can you do something to to reach it, to find it, to open it? Yeah. So that's what you know. All of the yogis were doing was to prepare their body um, for an awakening or to to help the kundalini rise in a safe way. So when the kundalini arises spontaneously or if it's forced to awaken, it it's very uh, it can be very damaging and destructive to the to the physical body and to the person who's experiencing such an awakening. So my kundalini happened spontaneously. I didn't know what kundalini was when it happened to me. Um, but once it awoke, I understood exactly why it why it woke and who I was and all these different lifetimes and the energy I carried and what I was here to do. And so it all started teaching me through the awakening. But the problem is um, a lot of people's in the in the Western world, we don't know what Kundalini is, but in the Eastern world, they still kind of honor those whose kundalini awakens and and they're sort of marked as the shaman or the healer or the community leader and they're taken into these temples and mystery schools to be trained um and fine-tuned to to then be a leader and to come out having like honed their gifts Um, but they need a mentor and a guide to really help them do that because it's it's such a wild energy it's like having electricity zapping you constantly and in the western world what happens is a lot of those people's psyches can't handle it and they crack and fragment and create schizophrenia or other types of mental distortions um, or sexual distortions so when when the kundalini rises whatever hasn't been cleared whatever past traumas karmas issues haven't been cleared in each chakra, each energy center along your spine. When the kundalini hits those areas, so it's this golden light that rushes up the up your spine and wherever you have a, a distortion or a genetic 
trauma or an inheritance that is of darkness, when the light hits it, it gets exaggerated. So I see a lot of people's kundalini rise spontaneously and that they, they don't know what's going on, then they might either become main, like manic, super manic. They might all of a sudden want to have sex with everything and everyone, or they might um, go crazy paranoid and start talking to ghosts and seeing all kinds of things because all of your senses blast open. And if your physical body isn't tuned to handle it, it's just literally way too much energy, electrical energy moving in a body that can't hold it. It's not grounded. It's literally not, not grounded to, to move. So when you, there are practices, yogic practices, kriyas, all the kriyas were to balance the kundalini life force and to allow it to flow naturally. Because when we awaken it and we can hone it, then we're we're kind of unstoppable. Like we have this life force and energy and, and glow and we're connected to love at all times, but we have to clear the distortions else it can be used against us or against our, our will, or it can just be unwieldy and therefore dangerous to others. Does that clarify it, Brian? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to ask more. I, this is the easiest way I can describe it right now. It was. I. It was. I mean, I didn't have any questions because it made sense. Oh, okay, good. You did. I, I think you did. I think you did a, a, a great job. I, it, oh. it made me wonder. You know, is is there a certain age that this happens? Can it happen to, you know, a, when you're a child or yes. a teenager, or is it an adult thing? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So what I think is that a lot of kids, um, their kundalini is already active, and then all of the traumas are to stop it from activating. Um, I remember being six years old and knowing exactly what my sexual energy was and how to use it. Like I was very awake to the Shakti life force, the divine feminine life force flowing in me. And um and I remember it trying to be controlled by the people in the church. And I remember them marking me as a disruptor, like that, that I, I was uncontrollable in that way. Like they couldn't take that from me, what they took from my sister and my best friend and her best friend, they couldn't take it from me. And I was aware of how to kind of hide it or shut it down. Um, and I think that's why it spontaneously woke back up. Um, when I was 30. So do you help people with these types of things as far as, mm -hmm. you know, their sexual energy and. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I kind of specialize in that because I found that in my own searching, when my Kundalini woke, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to my ex-husband um, who was a friend at the time when it happened, he was the only person around me that understood what was happening to me. And although I was receiving guidance from the other side, guiding me, I didn't have a physical human being besides him to, to help me. So I was seeking out shamans and gurus all over the world to, to kind of confirm back to me what was happening. And, and I found some guides here and there and teachers that I worked with. Um, 
But what I realized once I, I went through nine years of, an, of very intense initiations to hone my gifts and it was terrifying experiences um, in order to be able to really ground my gifts and not be so terrified by them. A lot of times I felt that it was more of a curse and um, I didn't want the gifts. I wanted it to shut off because life was way more simple before. Um, but then I found that they were, they were asking me to, uh, my gifts and, and my soul self was remembering that I'm here to, to help those. So I do one-on-one sessions with people who've, who are managing a Kundalini awakening and needing to hone their gifts. And then I, I take people through a year long process to really learn the, the fundamentals of how to ground the activation so that they can bring their gifts to the world in a, in a powerful way. And it depends on the person and what they're experiencing, kind of where, where I work with people. I only do one-on-one sessions for really uh, severe cases of, of trauma and, and light, like those who've had a ton of trauma and are waking up because they need really special care. Um, I also do retreats and and customized retreats for those who are really ready to to ground and needing um, the stable structure to do that. Um, So yeah, if anyone listening has had an intense awakening and and they haven't found someone to to mentor and guide them, please um, contact me because I found it I needed to offer the gift that no one gave me, which were these very simple keys for, for modern day people. Like I'm not Hindu and, and yet I had to live in India for eight years to really ground um, my experience. But you know, that's not, most people don't have a, an Indian person coming into their life and, and guiding them there and bringing you back to the motherland. So you can remember, you know, it's, we all have different limitations for, for what we're being asked and and where we're being asked to awaken. But I I feel that the Western world is waking up very fast because of all that we have access to. Like a lot of these practices and um, situations were, they were always kept secret. They were always, um, they're in all the ancient cultures, all have mystery schools. They all had an, an understanding of this experience of, of these people who, who were coming in to be the oracles, to be the guides, to be the, the leaders of their communities with these special powers. Yet um, in the West, we tend, they, the secret societies take them, the cults take them, they get taken into the government or to the FBI. Like I, I've just, or, or they get, um, medicated and hospitalized mm-hmm. or they need to live in the oh. shadows and on the fringes because they don't fit in at all to the societal structures. It's interesting how many people get hospitalized and then medicated. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if there, if anything's going on, I, I know several people like that who are now on medication it's just so sad to me so sad it's really really sad yeah i i don't work with 
those who are trying to get off medication or who've been hospitalized, I, I work with those who know what's happening to them and are ready to hone it. Um, cause there's different types uh, of levels of, of awakening experiences, but, um, yeah, if anyone listening, if that's you, I definitely am here. There's something called memory implants that I'm just learning about the last few years that, and it makes sense to me, but basically, you know, we've been, the way we've been indoctrinated to believe our origin, our creation story or where we come from in the, in the way that history has been told to us about how even just like our nations were formed in the same way that we are indoctrinated with all these different beliefs of how things are, we, we also are being um, indoctrinated with thought forms of false memory to pose us against one another, to destroy love, to destroy bonds. And it works. It does. And until it, and, and there is ways to clear, to clear those implants of, of memory. Good. So I, well, that's an interesting yeah. way of, yeah, I do. I never even thought of that. Yeah. And it's the same way, like we, how we lock trauma, you know, our brains get fragmented in trauma. Like if we, if we're traumatized when we're young, um, in order to survive and in order for the, for the young person to cope with such a tragedy, um, or even as adults, um, we, we segment in order to function, right? We just fracture off and, from a shamanistic perspective, it, it's called soul loss. And so a part of the soul is trapped in a different timeline, another dimension, in a, a physical location. So if if you were raped or attacked or uh, even saw something very violent, a part of your psyche that can't um, cope w- with what you saw will stay in that uh, will we'll sort of break off from you. You'll you'll abandon it in order to move on. And when you start doing the healing work and and clearing these traumas, you have to reclaim those lost parts of you that that left because of trauma, and that's called soul retrieval. Um, Lord Voldemort needed that help. Yeah. I don't know if he's helpable, but he's sort of born of darkness. But yes, we all need this. We all need soul retrieval and recapitulation of the parts of us that had trauma, had wounding, had difficult thing, difficult uh, loss, sacrifices, um, betrayals. In all of those circumstances where we have an extreme emotion, we've had some sort of a soul loss or fragmentation. And so we need to go back to those timelines, back to those memories and forgive ourselves, forgive our perpetrators, take back our power and really reclaim the, the gift and the wisdom of the wound, which isn't so easy because if we're stuck in, in the victimization of it, we can't claim the gift. 
So we have to claim our sovereignty and our in our sort of cosmic self, our, our big bright light of love, and absorb it into unconditional love on all angles in order to heal that part of us that's that's um, where the soul loss the soul loss resides creates like a hole in your energetic field, and therefore until it's healed and cleared and sealed. Uh, you can't contain your light. You can't hold the amount of love and the energy that that you really could potentially uh, live into or experience if you were to heal it. Yeah, and I think for it's really important to let people understand that you know talking about our sexual energy as something really beautiful and divine is so important because there's. We've been really programmed to hold a lot of shame around our sexual energy, um, and that shame is such a low frequency to keep us in that place where um, we do feed this negative energy. And so when we can really celebrate the beauty and the love of the sexual energy and what it's actually intended for in that it is the source of all of our creative energies, all of our creation and to use it. I mean, we had, we had Jessica Alstrom on our show back in June or July. And um, she talked about using the orgasm for manifesting Mm -hmm. in, and, and really in a beautiful way. And um, to understand that, to really, I think, reconnect with the beauty of that energy and to take the time if you're in a relationship with someone, in partnership with someone, that you're really connecting with that person in an intimate way, that there is that eye contact, that there is a deeper engagement and deeper connection to move that energy in a really beautiful way is, I think, um, some some a place where a lot of people can start. Um in many ways. And also um, for people to really use the eyes as um, a a gauge for what's going Mm -hmm. on. So like, for instance, when you were talking about this connect, like, you know, really you being able to see an an energy take over someone's body just by looking at their eyes. Mm Mm-hmm you know, in those darker moments, like I've experienced Mm -hmm. that with people where I was dating someone and I personally don't like to have people in my life that are partaking in Mm -hmm. um, drugs. Uh, It just makes me feel very uncomfortable when, when they're on them. And I've, um, one of the reasons is like this person who I'd been dating, I have like a specific role. Like if you're, you cocaine like I'm just not there I'm not there with you I don't want this part of the journey like I'm just not like it's a it's a very I've never been able to explain it on why people used to question me all the time as I was growing up why does it bother you so much and now I'm starting Mm -hmm. to understand why and it's because I see something come in through the eyes that is that wasn't there before and it just makes me uncomfortable and I don't trust the person anymore and I think like when we start to really question why we're being exposed to the sort of stuff to do it, like it's like it's um, a cool thing to do or it's a fun thing to do or a fun experience um, that 
when we really start to question the deeper agendas behind what this could be, it, the picture becomes a lot clearer. At least for me, it has become a lot clearer. And I understand things a lot more and I've become very picky and choosy about um, not just who my sexual partners are, but just even who I spend time with. Absolutely. I'm the same way. So I just think that's really important. And um, to leave things on a, a lighter mm-hmm. note <laughs> for our for our audience, um, because it was it was a heavy topic, but I think it's important for everyone to to understand and get to know. And and, and let's face it, the shadow work of our spiritual journey. This is all part of it. And and not being afraid of the shadow work and really starting to get to understand it and, and get right up in its face and be comfortable with it and then start giving it love is, I think, one of the most important aspects of the journey. So if people are coming to this understanding of what true love is and what real love means when just love for yourself, love for other people, love for your intimate partner, how does that look and feel for you? For me, Amelia? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so mm-hmm. glad yeah. <laughs> you you brought back the lighter aspects because um, that's the point of the whole discussion or the, the journey in, into the shadow. And, you know, when we're connected to love, we feel safe, comforted, supported, um, connected, and love is the, you know, I spoke of love as a currency. It's also creates full abundance. So, so when, when we invite love in and we, we really need to invite it, we need to choose love on a constant basis. We need to choose love over fear over and over and over again with each thought, with each way that we're participating in our realities. Um, when we do that, we, encourage the light to get stronger and stronger. And I, I really encourage everyone to, to have a practice of, of connecting to love every day. And I offer a really quick way of, of doing that. You can get it on my um, website through audio or video, but I call it a vertical alignment practice of activating the sovereign nature, but it's really activating the, the light in your heart so you can reclaim your own sovereignty as a divine spark of love. And when we do that again and again and again, it's like a muscle that builds and we start to experience more joy, more happiness for absolutely no reason. We have less interest in, in the physical pleasures or the, the holes that we're trying to fill through consumerism, through, um, desensitized sexual behavior through all of these distortions that the lack of love creates in our system because we all have those distortions. And the more we invite love in, the more we choose to feel love. And and for those listening who are like, I don't even know what that feels like, you just need to imagine it and and open the door to it. Open the door because we've all been betrayed and hurt and lost some aspect of believing it, you know, through whatever situations and experiences we've had, there's probably some part in your storyline of kind of losing faith in love or faith in humanity or faith in the divine, 
through some lie you were told or and that was all designed for you to find the truth about it so we all have that truth in us we all have an ability to tune it and and we need to do the work to tune it for ourselves to find our own discernment around it to find our own path and in the connection of intimacy with our partners and loved ones to really bring breath and presence and eye gazing in. I mean, that's the easiest way to, to notice where your, your own fear lies. Like if you can't look in the eye of your lover while you're making love, (laughs) then you know that you have some work to do and, and to go slow with yourself and to be compassionate with yourself and, and go slow, like really just slow it all down to, to breathing together, to just, being present with yourself. And if you can't breathe with someone else, make sure you're at least doing it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the best place to start is first with yourself and then start bringing it into your relationships. Um, Cause it can get a little overwhelming at first if there's more people involved. I. Yeah. And part of the process when you start meditating, so I, you know, I help people really, um, to hone that connection to the self and people avoid it because a lot of things come up the minute they close their eyes and start breathing. And generally it's all the discomfort. It's, it's all of the anxiety or fears or emotional stagnancy that you've been pushing into your closet. So, you know, if you find yourself sitting and breathing and then you just want to cry and you don't know why you're crying, I invite you to just allow yourself to cry. And it's really important that you, you find a safe place to do these practices in, you know, like I talk about creating a recharge station. And actually that brings me to the fact that I have a five day challenge coming up, um, October 5th through the 7th, where I'm sorry, fourth, third through the 7th, um, where I'm going to help people activate their gift. And just like, 10, 20 minutes a day is really all it takes um, to start. And then your craving for it will grow on its own. Oh, that sounds amazing. So if where can people um, sign up for that? Uh, if, on my Facebook page, it's, it's my private Facebook page. So if you go to um, Rebirth and Renewal, Master the Art of Change, it's a private Facebook group and join that group, you'll have access to it. Um, and my name on Facebook is Amalia Eon Karras, and the, my mystery school is Know the Self. And you'll see links to my challenge or to join my Facebook group, and then you'll get access to that. Great. So uh, what I'll do is I'll leave all of your information in our show notes so that um, yeah, people perfect. can access it really easily. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, this was such a, a very interesting conversation. We, we went to a lot of different places. We did. <laughs> you know when the show goes by really quickly yeah. that it was yeah. Oh, good. Show. Is Brian still with us? Are you breathing, Brian? <laughs> of course oh, I'm still here. You're good. You asked some great questions, Brian. Deeply connected. So, yeah, so thanks so much for being on and to our audience. uh, Thanks for sticking around if you did. I know that some of these topics were really sensitive, um, but it's it's important for us to 
really kind of pull back the veil and shine light in a lot of the darkest places. We do that on the microcosm with ourselves, but we also have to do that on the macrocosm of the world. And so um, thank you to all of you who were um, able to stick around. And uh, if any of you are have any questions that you'd like us to answer on the show, uh, please send that into our email, info at enlightenup.us. If you have any topic ideas that you'd like us to cover that we haven't covered yet, you can do that as well, sending that into our email. And thanks so much for joining us, and we will be back with you all next week. Bye. Bye.